Greetings, Dale. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Hi. Hi. So thanks again for coming on to the show. I just want to quickly introduce you to uh, the audience. So Dale is a trader here in Montreal and has had a long time career in trading. And I'll let you tell uh, Dale tell his story a little bit further in a few moments. But uh, why, why I invited Dale uh, to talk to us today is uh, because he just recently presented our at our Montreal Traders Meetup just uh, last week, and he gave a fantastic presentation on quantitative trading and shared his perspective on system design and just his experiences building uh, systems. So, Dale, uh, really look forward to exploring this topic further and hearing more about your trading journey. So, thanks once again for coming on the show. Well, thanks for inviting me, Jason. I really appreciated uh, speaking last week. It was a lot of fun. You bet, man. People, people loved your, your presentation. So why don't we start from the, uh, from the top? Why don't you share with the audience maybe your trading story? Tell us, you know, you've been trading for a while. Tell us how you got started, and, um, and we'll go from there. Sure. Um, I would say my journey started, uh, I was thinking about this morning about 20 years ago, <laughs> 1998. Mm. Uh, I, uh, I had a summer job in Calgary, and that was my first exposure to the oil and gas sector. And um, that was when oil was at in the low teens. Yeah. Um, and so the people around me were working in, in, the, in either in the oil and gas sector or in the trading uh, business, so in uh, financial services. And so I was exposed to it a lot. And what happened was I was at the end of my, uh, my, uh, my university studies, and I, that experience really shifted my, uh, the focus of my last uh, eight months in, uh, of, of my school. Uh, my studies, so I, I completely reached, uh, focused my, my thesis onto option pricing. Uh, I did a course on time series analysis and applied it to stock market returns, these sorts of things. Mm. And that, that got me going. And then from that um, uh, experience, then I, I got my first job on a trading floor in Calgary the following, uh, following year, so 1999. Okay. And so I started, which is sort of the classic way on, as an analyst, so uh, doing fundamental analysis of electricity and, and uh, gas markets. Mm. And so that, that was my first foray into, uh, into trading. It was very, uh, uh, very intimidating at first. Uh, the day started very early because we were uh, trading New York hours in Calgary. So uh, we had a fundamental meeting at six, uh, sorry, 7 a.m. So we had to be in the office by 6 and so I'm running models, doing all these things, and I had to give a presentation to traders every morning at uh, 7 a.m. <laughs> and that was, uh, uh, yeah, it was <laughs> quite intense. Um, and then from there, I, uh, I, I mean, I was, I was young and I, I guess maybe overly ambitious and I wanted to do different things. And so I, 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 uh, I switched from trading into uh, consulting, so still as an analyst. Uh, and, and during this whole period of time, my roommate was a uh, stockbroker. So like the classic before, uh, you know, uh, online brokerages when we had these uh, <laughs> classic uh, uh, brokerage accounts with where you had to phone in your orders. Phone in your orders, sure. <laughs> orders. <And> so he, <laughs> and of course, this was during the dot-com boom. And so we had, uh, I, I oh, so one of the first things I did when I moved to Calgary was open a trading account with him, of course. Okay. And uh, so we were in on these IPOs. And at the time, it, the, uh, the big thing was the, uh, the JCP market, so the, the predecessor to today's uh, venture exchange. Right. They call JCPs now, like the, kind of like an IPO, but for very small capital pools. Yeah. And so we were active on those. And uh, so that was sort of my, my sideline was, was trading uh, equities. And then my, my, my day job was... Uh, uh, in, in the commodity markets. So you had that side hustle going, making yeah. some extra cash <laughs> on the side, sure. <laughs> <laughs> and then from there, then from there, by 2001, I got an itch and I wanted to uh, go abroad to work. And uh, at the time, the electricity and power markets were deregulating mm. in uh, Europe. And so I had this whole baggage of experience with fundamental modeling for power and gas markets in North America, where things had been very, uh, let's say, you know, ahead of their time. And this was around the same time that Enron was starting to, the wheels were starting to come off of Enron. Mm. And so I also wanted, I didn't know it with perfect hindsight, I, I, I can say it now, but I mean, at the time, I, there was a bit of a gut feeling that things were not all right. And mm. so actually I was glad to get that job in Europe because uh, in, 
in the year after I, I left Calgary, I, a lot of my friends were laid off and had to switch companies. These sorts of things had happened. Hmm. And um, so during that period of time, I, uh, I put the brakes on trading. I was not as active on, on trading. I, was more, I considered myself more of an investor. I think the thing was when I was a consultant, we were seeing a lot of the projects going on in the oil and gas sector in the uh, oil sands. And so I had a pretty good fundamental view of what was going on there. And so I just invested in a lot of oil and gas stocks in that mm. time. It was very, very much long-term uh, holding periods. Um, and then I would say progressively from 2002 to 2005, I was trying, I tried on a number of different occasions to get back into trading, wasn't able to get, in, get a job. And then finally by 2005, the, the stars were aligned and I got back onto, onto a trading floor in Europe. And I, uh, and that's where I stayed for, so I was on that trading floor for 11 years until okay. 2016. And, uh, and over that period of time, I covered uh, three different product groups, so uh, structured products trading. So I was more on the option pricing and kind of more bespoke products. Okay. And then on to cross-commodity trading, which was uh, spread trading, basically uh, finding uh, relationships between different commodities and trading on that basis. Okay. And then lastly, uh, coal, so financial coal swaps. Interesting. So, you know, a couple of questions come to my mind that I'm curious about. So you mentioned that the kind of the, the wheels fell off of that whole Enron train. What was the, what was the blowback there? So when Enron did fall apart, how come people ended up losing their jobs there? What was the, the blowback from that whole debacle when Enron kind of folded? I think the principal thing that happened was that with Enron gone, they were a massive liquidity provider in a lot mm-hmm. of these markets. And the problem with, power and gas markets at the time, aside from Henry Hub, a lot of these smaller hubs and uh, locations um, needed liquidity to, to just um, to keep those markets going because the gotcha. incumbent utilities were not, they were not in a trading mindset. Mm. Right? They were yeah. more in a production mindset. I produce electricity, I sell it onto the grid. And Enron had this approach where we're, we are buyers and sellers at any given time. We right. make Right, that was their one of their mottos, and when they fell away, some of the larger player. Then there, there, there was there was a, there was a couple things that happened at the same time. Um, there was an overbuild of, uh, of power plants in the U.S., so a lot of the, uh, the utilities who or or trading houses like Duke, Dynegy, these guys were also invested in these power plants at the same time, mm. and so they had cash flow issues related to that as well and so that their trading appetite reduced as well hmm. as luck had it where i moved to in europe there was not that issue i mean and enron hit europe as well we actually the company that i worked for we hired uh, two or three traders from ex enron traders during okay. that same period of time and uh, but we absorbed that and things just kept going i think Interesting. that was the difference yeah. yeah i think enron was well famed to have a huge trading trading desk Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and they had this they had this reputation in the market of that they could do no wrong that's right they had this amazing quarters quarter after quarter year after year it was like perfect financials every single year until it wasn't right <laughs> yeah what a crazy story um, so folks who never you know maybe have not read up on Enron or or don't know much about uh, uh, trading desks on in energy companies what does that kind of look like what do they do are they like I know, I know it was kind of an exception because they were making markets as well, but uh, um, would you typically say that these uh, trading companies or these energy companies are trading desks, they're, they're hedging themselves or are they actually using trading as a means of making revenue as well, speculate and, and, and earn revenue? Yeah, there's definitely, I, I would say that there's, there's a three, uh, I would say that there's three pillars to uh, trading in, in these uh, commodity firms okay um so the first is the the obvious hedging flow that happens so they uh, you have a power plant you need to sell power you need to buy gas to, to put into the power plant to, to burn yeah those are kind of these classic flows you have external customer flows that's the second pillar which is more related to uh it could be clients that you are you don't even have power plants in that market, but you're, you're providing uh, like re- retail services to, for, 
in another market, for example, you want to make a uh, you want to make inroads into the, the French power market or the Dutch power market. You have no power plants there, but you're buying mm. wholesale power and, and packaging it on to, to retail or uh, industrial clients. And then the third is, is, and that depends on the appetite of the company, but there's definitely a, a proprietary trading activity in, in a lot of these firms. And my view of it is that the it's not so much speculative as it is information gathering. I think what companies value is the infra, and I, that's something that I really felt uh, appreciated as a trader, bringing market information to the company. Okay. So we're seeing things much faster than senior management, right? We see trends happening. I mean, I remember during the 2008 crisis, we, we were seeing, we saw Lehman, I, had, I took a, a, a loss on Lehman Brothers instantly, right? Hmm. Very quick. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, because uh, all of a sudden, from one day to the next, they're, they're not there to, uh, to pay the bills. So it's right. Um, yeah. And so the trading desk, though, if they are speculating, then they still, they're not considered a cost center. They still have to make money, and obviously they have to you know, turn a profit, which is not that. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that, that's certainly, I mean, there, there's a profitability. And I've seen, I think the thing is, if I look at, um, over those years, I've seen some spectacular blow-ups, not, not in, so much internally, but on, in, in the marketplace. Yeah. Uh, because it's an OTC market, right. um, in a lot of cases, we see the counterparties. Uh, and so you see company X is buying a lot. <laughs> yeah. You know that they're long or, or they've been covering a massive short one way or yeah. the other. Yeah. And, uh, and so those, that information gets out into the market, of course. Right. That's, that's definitely... Uh, it, it, I find trading is a more uh, has a more of a personal element to it in the mm -hmm. market. You know who's on the other side of the trade. Yeah. And so the job is your job then. Then you know if you know that is to squeeze that other person. Are you ever have you been on that yeah. side? You're like you purposely going after that other side party. You're knowing yeah these guys are probably trapped and yeah. Our job is to kind of <laughs> stick it to them. Yeah. <laughs> There's definitely reading. Uh, interesting enough, I'd say that. I think the, the biggest blow-ups I've seen over the last uh, 10 years are, have to do with the own person's ego. Mm. Uh, and they yeah. tend to corner themselves into a market and all of a sudden the query dries up and they can't get up. Yeah. Uh, and they've, they've taken a big bet on one side of the market and at some point uh, the market figures that out and uh, yeah. gets ugly. And you mentioned you, you, know, you, you, you traded you know, kind of three different types of products. Uh, some of them are OTC and some of them are on the on an exchange. Yeah. Uh, what is kind of the difference? Like most retail traders are never traded OTC because you know they just don't have the we don't have the counterparties. Uh, what's that like? What's like? What's it like trading OTC versus trading on a on a regular exchange? I, I find that um, on an exchange, you are um, your order types. Everything is very mechanical. I, I, since I've switched to that system now, I, it, it's, it's much easier for me to, 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 to deal, not to make money, but to, to deal in, in, in markets. Yeah. Uh, the OTC markets, generally speaking, uh, at least the ones that I, I dealt with, dealt in, um, are a combination of, of voice and screen. Okay. And so the screen that you see is not a, uh, it's not an exchange screen, but it's an aggregation of different broker screens. Mm. And so we had a, a platform that would aggregate these prices in, into one common uh, set of uh, bids and offers. Yeah. And, but in between those prices, there's voice markets all the time, especially in illiquid products. And that's where um, understanding your broker, how they're working your orders, they're, it gets very nuanced at times. Mm. Um, and I find it hard to manage... Uh, so on one hand, you, you have your, your position that you want to manage and you want to do the right thing. But on the other hand, the day-to-day the, the -day physical activity of trading is, is, can be very overwhelming sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, I can imagine that. Imagine if you're trading OTC and you have kind of that squawk box and there's yeah. a bunch of voices going on and you're trying to track these different markets. It must, be, exactly. it must take time to kind of get used to that kind of uh, information flow. Yeah, exactly. And it's very interesting to see the waves of how it, how it works too. Mm. Because some, yeah. A lot of times we, we, the, the, commodity mark, the commodity complex, energy complex just gets attached to the oil price. Right. And so of course the oil price is the one that moves the fastest. So we'd be sitting there. Uh, so when the, the, um, the, uh, 
Department of Energy statistics, when they come out on mm. Wednesdays, yeah. it's late afternoon for us in Europe. And that was always, that's just a big event. I mean, right. yeah. But in the same time, right? <laughs> yeah, the broker screen, the, the, the broker, the, the squawk box lights up and you've yeah. got brokers shouting all kinds of different things. And, uh, people are just reacting on, on, you know, movements of, of oil price which have nothing to do with the other commodities but right. at least temporarily there's a perception of that yeah and so you know having traded uh, you know on that trade desk and the institutional side what's typically the you know for a person who's you know more on the retail side and never has never been exposed to that is there usually like a, a training program that people usually go through or, or is there some sort of mentoring that happens to make sure that you know all right you don't just get on the desk and you know learn by failing is there a way that people you know that they, these companies tend to you know, cultivate their employees so that, uh, so that yeah, they're not just you know, throwing money at them. And yeah, definitely, definitely. There, there is a, a senior junior um, mentorship that, okay. that happened in our company. Okay. Uh, so when I, interestingly, so I was on the desk already for three years, and when I switched desks, I was still put under a senior trader. Yeah, okay. Uh, to keep an eye on me, make sure I'm, you know, and. And I, I was in that role later on and you're always, you know, making sure, check your deals, all these sort of basic things you need to make sure that, make sure that the brokers, you know, you've done this, you've done that. You kind of have a checklist at the end of the day to make sure that your, uh, your positions are square. That, mm -hmm. um, so there's definitely a, it's, it's more, I would say it's more of a, a mentorship okay. that happens. You do have to do, of course, the regulatory requirements, but that, that's just the basics, right? You don't right. Have anything there. Yeah. Um, but the, uh, but definitely there, there's, there's a mentorship that, that happens kind of informally, but okay. it, it's super strong though. It's very strong. You, you, uh, you, you, uh, gain a lot of respect for senior traders. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, that's, a, I think that's something that a lot of retail traders miss out, miss out on, right? Because they don't have yeah. that, that guidance from someone who's kind of been there and, and kind of been in the, kind of had the, the battles and, and that kind of stuff. And they can yeah. learn from someone a little more senior to, uh, versus just going off and trying to figure it out on your own, which unfortunately is, is a very, very tough way of doing things. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So, um, so let's keep going. So do you, you were working at the, uh, you know, at a European firm now transition us to where you are nowadays. So I know nowadays you, you've kind of shifted a bit, you changed your style of trading. Talk yeah. us through the, you know, what, what kind of, uh, uh what's the catalyst for you to change and what, what are you doing nowadays? So that for me was I, in 2016, we, uh, so as a family, we decided we wanted to move back to Canada. And I think at that point in time, I was, um, I needed some sort of new challenge with my trading. Not that I was, you know, I mean, there's always challenges, of course, but I wanted to, to do something, I don't know, uh, something different, let's say. Okay. <laughs> and um, so the first thing I did was I just took a break. So, uh, so late 16, early 7, 2017, I, I didn't look at markets really. Uh, and then through, but at the same time, I, I knew that I needed to work on things like basic programming skills. I always had been implicitly throughout my year, throughout my years in trading, I'd always been doing modeling, but, um, very ad hoc. I was just, uh, building usually it would be an Excel model. And if it was getting too slow, I would program it. It was more out of late, I'd program out of laziness than any sort of real genuine interest. Okay. That's <laughs> so, <laughs> so a good motivator, right? <laughs> How can I save some time? <laughs> I just need to automate this and so make it go away. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and so, uh, so then what happened was, um, so during the course of 2017, I, I, I took some online courses in programming, Java, Python, these sorts of things. And uh, towards the end of the year, I was getting a bit bored with that because I'm just doing these exercises over and over again. And I, mm -hmm. I, I get the hang of it, but I need an application. And um, so around this time last year, I'd mentioned this in last week's meetup, I, I, I got back to reading, uh, finally got to reading uh, Reminiscence of a Stock Operator. Yeah. And that book is just incredible how it, uh, it really, um, it puts you into the emotions of, of what the guy's going through. It puts you through the, just walks you through a lot of things that are, are timeless, really. Yeah. It's a new book, but it's very timeless. And, and that kind of gave me a, a bit of a, 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 an itch to get back into it again. And so at the start of this year, I started 
applying what I learned with Python and not so much Java, but on the Python side, uh, getting some data sets in, starting to do some analysis. Let's see, you know, can I, can I build up a model from scratch? Uh, and that was sort of my challenge. And, uh, and so over the course of this year, I've been, I think the thing was what I realized being in that OTC environment is that because you're, ha you're interacting with brokers a lot, it's a very social activity. You're, you're right. checking prices all the time. You're always, uh, there's an emotional element, unfortunately, to the trading that, that, that comes through because if you didn't get filled, it's because your broker didn't get you done. Yeah. You know, you're, right. you're angry, you know, I was bid on screen, why didn't you get me done? And blah, blah, you know, these sorts of things. And so there's this uh, element of, of, of emotions that I wanted to, to take out of the trading. And knowing okay. that I was going to be going into exchange uh, traded markets, knowing that these are much more, with much deeper liquidity than what I'm used to, knowing that the the finding an edge in those markets is much more difficult. I knew that I needed to have some way of systematizing uh, my process to get the emotions under control. Mm. Uh, and so that's really the, been the process of this year is, is um, uh, you know, get, getting, getting a system down that I'm comfortable with. It's, it's still evolving. And interestingly, I, I was really, I really appreciated presenting last week at the meetup because, uh, the follow-on discussions afterwards got me thinking of a few other things. Did you think about this? Did you think about that? Yeah. And that's something that's missing right now from my trading, actually, is that I, I was in a, one extreme for the last 11 years where I'm in a very, very social environment on a trading floor where it's very noisy. You're constantly interacting with other traders yeah. who being at home alone. And, uh, and when I think of you know, a lot of retail traders home alone trying to do this, my God, that's a very tough... Uh, Flight. It's, it's, yeah. it's a hard, it's a hard slog. Yeah, exactly. And um, that make, you know, that makes me think about the stories that uh, I think we've all of us heard in the past about when you know floor traders, you know, on the uh, NYC or in the in the pits of Chicago, mm -hmm. as that migration happened from you know kind of being on the floor to having to be you know kind of off, you know, using just the screens and, and being off the floor. Yeah. A lot of those traders, they lost a lot of informational flow, right? Because they you were so used to being social traders and being around the pits and hearing Absolutely. the noise. You you feel that too? I guess you 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 were kind of tied to that squat box, so I'm sure you must have also had some cues that you'd always take off that were verbal, right? So definitely, definitely. Yeah. I mean, you 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 already. It's funny because even when you feel it, I mean, just to give you an idea, when when there's a um, a transition in the market when a market's mm -hmm. going through like an intraday reversal, right? Yeah. Um, generally what happens is you have sellers who are not really sellers. They're just trying to get filled on the bid. And right. so they're putting weight on, on the screen, but you see it and you know it because you know that there's a broker behind it. He's pushing that price. Yeah. He's trying to get it, get it down onto, get it, get the bid filled and it's not getting filled. And all of a sudden there's a second bid that creeps up hmm. and then Someone's looking for offer. Someone's checking the offer. Do you have, do you, you know, and maybe I'm sitting a little bit behind the screen on the offer side, you know, can you improve your offer, this sort of thing. And so there's this dynamic that, you know, where 10 minutes earlier, the, the, the brokers were just screaming to, to get bids sold and they aren't getting sold. And all of a sudden they're, they're looking for offers and, and a couple of the, the, these offers trying to push it down onto, onto, the, onto the bid are not there anymore. They, they start pulling back. Yeah. And then bing, 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 bing. And then, you, then it can get quite violent on, on, on a reversal like that. And yeah. it's very, uh, yeah, it's very, very um, uh, verbal, very vocal, right? Yeah. yeah. And then you don't feel that in, in obviously on a screen. Right, exactly. So maybe can you characterize like what's kind of been your transition then? How do you kind of, do you try to fill that void now that you're kind of off, you know, and you're using just the screen now? Or do you just kind of, you just kind of shifted your trading so that, you know, you just change the way you traded. It's, yeah, I think the, the, the biggest shift for me has been in, in the way that I trade. Yeah. And um, I think in the past, I mean, I've always worked with models in one way or another. Yeah. But I was always a little bit discretionary along the way. And now I find that I have to lean more and more towards a more systematic approach because I just see that I don't have the, the, the meaning on. And I, I think that what I, I mean, it's, it's interesting because I, I, um, I'm always trying to work on, on self-improvement uh, along the way. 
And I see that, that, that trading psychology has been, is, is my biggest challenge by far. Hmm. And the, the one thing that I, I, I wrote, down, <laughs> wrote down yesterday was I need to find some way to socialize my trading activity uh, in the sense that I need to be more involved so, for example, like last week's meetup is a, is a, is a prime example of, of, a, of a venue that uh, allows me to talk with other traders and, and see what they're seeing maybe differently than me. It's yeah. reading sentiment. It's reading uh, uh, different factors. That, and, and, and I need to find some way of, of, of doing that on, on, a, on a daily basis. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe you can share then, like, what is your, your trading approach now? So it's, uh, it's obviously uh, screen-based. It's uh, you yep. trade on exchange. Uh, what's kind of your approach? What's your methodology? You so, so my it. method is, if, if, I, if I had to broadly categorize it, it would be uh, uh, statistical arbitrage. Okay. So in the sense that it's, uh, I'm, I'm working, currently I'm working only with, with one model, with a, a mean reversion model, uh, which means that I'm, it's kind of the counterpoint to trend following systems. Yeah. Although there is a trend following element to what I'm doing. Um, basically, the premise is that um, if I look at the markets that I trade, I'm, I'm trying to find a market where reversion to an average price over time is, is common, mm. uh, where there's, there might be drift, but there's no strong trends that you don't expect, for example, the euro dollar to uh, triple in value over the next 12 months. Right. Versus a penny stock. <laughs> I expect it to yeah. sit in a range. It's going to be somewhere between whatever, maybe 110 and 120. And, and even if, if it goes above and beyond that range, I don't care really. It, it, that's more the, the, the system that will take over at that point. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so it, it's definitely, it, it's a very slow process. It, it's a, it's a, uh, it's a trading, it's trading that requires a lot of patience. Okay. How do you identify the, the right kind of markets for that system? So, how, you know, obviously you can use a bit of logic and say, yeah, I probably shouldn't apply that to, to penny stocks, but do you do any kind of like uh, quantitative work that allows you to say, all right, these kind of markets, you know, they're kind of range bound. Is, is there a way that you can identify that that you use or any thoughts on that? I, I'm looking at uh, a few different systems for the moment to okay. pre-select. So I, what I've done currently is I've built a base model, which is my, let's say my live trading model that, that, I, that I use um, on a daily basis. Yeah. But what I'm working on now is to pre-select the markets, as you said, to, um, uh, to basically uh, avoid markets that are, um, that, that are likely to, to trend that, 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 how would I put it? That, that for which the um, for which the st statistical approach doesn't work. Okay. Um, intuitively, just just by loading the model up into uh, into the platform, I can already just visually see when I see. Um, I, I work a lot with percentile deviations. Okay. And if I see percentile deviations that are way too close to the line, so meaning yeah. my mean price, then I know that there's a skew in the market. And it's very pronounced. So if I take like, for example, I mean, the one example I used last week at the presentation was the S&P 500. Right. Um, because of the, the long-term skew of that market, it's changing now, of course. Interestingly, now the model might start to actually work um, uh, with, with S&P, depending on, on where we go in the next couple months. But uh, because of the long pronounced trend, uh, any sort of statistical uh, deviations from mean are skewed. And then that, that's what I, I uh, I can't use the model. Okay. And how many markets do you trade now with that model? So currently I'm working with um, 11 currency crosses and gold. Okay. Uh, and what I'm looking probably very quickly, probably in January already, I'll be adding um, commodity time spreads. Okay. Uh, so for example, uh, December, uh, that's sort of the classic example is uh, calendar spread on oil. So yeah. deck, so December, uh, 2019 versus 2020, for example. Those are uh, uh, relatively stable um, spreads that drift up and down based on, on well, a combination of factors, but uh, the model uh, handles those uh, variations reasonably well. Okay. And I think I, rec I recall you saying at the presentation last, last week that uh, your model generates daily signals, right? So it's using 
uh, right. daily data or yeah. daily closed data, and then yeah. you're, you're making your, your entry decisions based off that. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So, is there a, so when you when you try to model this data, is there like a, a standard look back period that you look? Will you look back to the past? You know, so you'll look at the spy and say, all right, that's you know, it's kind of a trending market. Is it like a, a you know a three hundred sixty five day look back period, or is it like a in a six-month thing, what, what are you looking at in terms of uh, the amount of data you look back on to make sure that it's fitting in, in the model's you know sweet spot? Um, basically, depending on the, the the model parameter, I'm either looking back 50, 200, or 400 days. Uh, okay. And so the, the 400-day parameters are really the, the long-term stable uh, parameters that that don't move much, that I don't expect to move much, and I, I want I need to keep those relatively stable. For, for back testing purposes okay. as well, because I need to make sure that what I'm working with is not a moving target. Right. Uh, whereas the 200s and the 50s are more for things that need to capture uh, more dynamic uh, shifts in markets. Okay. Yeah. And I think, you know, uh, you, you mentioned something uh, last week, and I, and I really liked what you said about, you know, one of the reasons for creating your trading system you already talked about a bit already about, you know, removing some of the emotion out of it. But I recall you talked about how, you know, you wanted to really design a system that kind of fit your life, right? Versus having your life fit your, your trading, so to speak. Maybe you could talk a little bit more about that and the importance of maybe, you know, setting goals for your, for your trading system, right? Yeah, no, definitely. Uh, and it's, it's interesting because I, I find with, with markets, and this is my, my it's been my assertion for a, a long time that, if you don't know what you want to get out of the market to start with, yeah. the market's going to feed off of your emotions and, <laughs> and yeah. you're going you're you're to end up doing what the market makes your uh, emotions happiest with, let's say, or gives you the biggest highs and lows, let's say. Yeah. Uh, that, that's been my feeling. And I, I've seen it time and time again on the trading floor as well, where some people just get into uh, bad habits that are mm. driven by the market, not driven by, by rational, cool-headed thinking. Um, I find that with a systematic approach, it, it suits my style um, for, how would I put it? There, there, there's, there's, let me put it this way. If, if, I, if I take the two extremes, if I take like pure discretionary versus a pure systematic approach, yeah, I, I find that there's nothing wrong with discretionary trading. I, I did it for a long time as well, but there's an element of ego that comes with it, unfortunately for me. And part of it is wanting to be right. Yeah. So when I'm defining entry stops and, and, and exits, there's an element of wanting to be right about those numbers. It's not coming from a model. Um, and implicitly there's a bit of a bullish and bearish bias that, that creeps into that. Mm -hmm. And I find that at least the way that I'm trading now, I'm much more agnostic towards those elements. Yeah. So the first reason why I, I, I trade systematically is to manage my own emotions. I, uh, it's been something that I've struggled with for a long time. And, and I feel much more zen waking up in the morning, especially with the way the system is set up. As you mentioned earlier, uh, I, I take uh, basically my, my trading session happens at the close. I, I don't. Okay. I avoid looking at screens during the day, intraday. That could change with time. I, I see that there's parts of the system that might be more conducive to, to day trading. Okay. Um, but that's something I'd have to probably look at a little bit later. And it also fits my. Um, well, there's two elements. There's it fits sort of my. I like math and I like statistics and these sorts of things. Uh, so it fits my, my persona well. And secondly, uh, as I mentioned, uh, I, have, um, I have this mantra that I keep repeating, time, travel, trade. And I want to have time for friends and family. Mm -hmm. uh, I want to be able to travel and see things. And, and my view is trading is, is, is what, uh, what paves the way to, to, to doing that. Yeah. yeah. That's a really good point there. Really some, some fine wisdom around some of those ideas. I think you really struck a, you know, struck a core for me anyways. It's like, I, I know, uh, I've seen it with myself and, and other traders that, it, you know, it's a lot of people bring a, an element of neediness to the market, right? If you, and if you show up with that kind of neediness, whether the neediness of entertainment or you need to, you know, or you need to make money or any kind of neediness, 
Um, it's just like you, you know, bringing in that type of, type of needy type of relationship. And usually, it doesn't doesn't play out well, right? The people don't like needy people. Uh, exactly. So yeah, that that level of neediness, whether it's you know the entertainment value or you know because you want to escape the boredom or whatever it is, it's it's uh, probably the wrong place to, to look for to for that that outlet. So yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I like I like that your approach. Um, so so what do you like most about the, the trading style you've that you've developed nowadays? So it sounds like you have that, you know more time and um, more time to play with. You have you know more control of your emotions. What else are things that you most like about your trading style now? And maybe what, what do you least like about your, your new method or the current method you're using? I think that the, the, the likes, um, it's, um, it gives me at least my approach right now, I'm not working in a company. I mean, that, that could change of course with time, but there's this autonomy that I have mm. right now. Yeah. So the ability to, uh, take an idea and go with it. Right. And, and I like doing that. It, it's, um, that's one of the things that's really kept me in trading for 20 years has been this idea that you can, you can see that there's this macro picture that's happening outside and find your way into it somehow through markets and, yeah. and express that through, uh, through trading. And I find that fantastic. And so, there, and so there's the autonomy and the, and the creativity that comes with it. That's what I love about this is trading. It's, it's a very creative job and for me anyways. That's the way I, I, I approach it anyways. I, I, like, I, I like the fact that markets do change. I like the fact that, you know, edges do break down after a while and you need to <laughs> sharpen old knives or sharpen new knives and, you know, find a different way to attack a, a market. Yeah. Um, the, the dislikes I have right now, my, my, my biggest dislike is the solitude that I have right now relative to what I had on a trading floor, definitely. Yeah. And, and related to that solitude is, is battling my emotions. I have a harder time dealing with my emotions. To give you an idea, so I mentioned earlier how um, in, on, on, on the trading floor where I was, there's sort of this senior-junior um, mentorship. And... Um, even as a senior trader, I find just sitting next to someone and talking through the idea, it, it brings that, um, it brings you out of the uh, <laughs> amygdala gland where you're, you know, flight or flight, uh, fight or flight, uh, yeah. and takes you back into the neocortex. Okay, let's think this through a bit. What are we trying to do? Because I, I can count, can't count how many times there's been on a, on a screen, you know, the screen is something's happening on screen. And then I look at the guy next to me, the person I'm trading with, I say every bone of my body wants to hit every bit on the screen. And yeah. I just can't, I have to sit here and wait and watch. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and it's good to have that, that second check on, 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 on the emotions. And that's something that I'm missing. I'm sure. Absolutely. Uh you ever considered maybe mentoring some some other junior trader just you know and, and so that gives you that uh, that opportunity to continue to you know to to um, yeah, outside yeah. of your head but at the same time you know share your wisdom as well impart some of your wisdom yeah no definitely definitely and in fact uh, there's been uh, let's say the, the initial ground for that has been laid uh, for um, uh, one one of the other participants in, in uh, of the uh, Montreal Traders Group. Cool. And uh, so I, I've been working with him. I, I we've met up uh, three, four times. Yeah. And it's interesting because just by meeting those three, four times, anytime I, I meet up with him, uh, like I, I, we come across each other, and uh, yeah, we, we get to talk trading, and and I see the the things that he's thinking about, right? And yeah. it's uh, it, it's I, I enjoy that actually. Yeah. Yeah. I really find, you know, that's why I find the, the meetup so so uh, empowering is that um, whether or not I present or not, just being around other traders, and especially when I present, it forces me to, you know, to take the yeah. material that I know, you know, the concepts that I know, and and forces me to own them in a way that uh, that I don't own them before, right? So if I'm going to go up there and present something and share my ideas, then I really need to understand those ideas. <laughs> and really, <laughs> I have to be living them, not just understand them from a, you know, cognitive perspective, but I need to be able to be living them from an experiential perspective. So that I'm not I'm not coming off as a hypocrite. So I think it's a very power, empowering kind of thing when we do these meetups and, and we have like guys like yourself, you know, share ideas, 
turns out that we end up getting better ourselves, right? Absolutely. I, I really, like, I can't emphasize enough how, how much those, uh, like, last week, just preparing for the presentation, it really forced me to sharpen the knives and say, okay, how, yeah. you know, iron sharpens iron. Okay, make sure that <laughs> I've got a presentation that's <laughs> iron, uh, that's, uh, you know, airtight, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And you had a really, some really fantastic, you know, points in your presentation. Maybe you talk about one, you know, I had written down one of the, one of your bullet points, and I think we had some good discussion at the meetup around this idea was around, you know, as it pertains to systems, you know, waiting for signal completion and the importance of, you know, waiting for that signal to kind of close out before taking the trade and jumping into it. So can you just expand on that kind of idea, the importance of, of that idea? Yeah, no, definitely. It's something that I, I, uh, <laughs> I've struggled with on a few occasions, especially over the summer when markets are, are going sideways. Yeah. And you start to see something that's happening and, Basically, the, the way that my, my model set up is that I'm, I'm generating the signals and they, they're only valid at the close. Mm. So you need to sit there and wait for the candle to complete. Yeah. And uh, so that means you, need to, you wait for the, the high, the low, and the close, right? And, and yeah. um, what, I, what happens is that the, uh, the model is already on, uh, at least the way I have it programmed, it's already generating the next day's signal, right? Yeah. which is 24 hours away. I shouldn't be looking at it, but sometimes you <laughs> oh, look, tomorrow, if we're at the same level tomorrow, yeah. it's bullish or it's bearish, right? Yeah. And, uh, and time and time again, the, 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 I've seen the market put things back into perspective and say, no, you have to wait for the signal close, trust the model, and, and stick with it. And, and that, that's very, uh, it's tough, but it, it, it's also, I think, important for... Um, uh, back testing and also for um, checking your own results afterwards. Mm -hmm. If you start to, if, if you're trading a system and it's a bit dishonest to say, well, yeah, the system did this, but then I, but I actually traded like that. Yeah. So yeah. You, 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 there's a style drift that happens. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's tough, right? Cause you have this urge, like you said, to kind of front run the system sometimes because you, in your head, you're already a couple steps ahead and thinking, okay, Absolutely. it's, it's going to close at this level. And so uh, why don't I just get in now? It's going to get a better price. <laughs> and yeah. it comes back to the ego. The ego wants to be right. The ego sees what's happening. It's like, ah, I see yeah. it. Yeah. The model isn't confirmed yet, but I see it already. Yeah. <laughs> and so in your, in your experience, when you run the signal, is it, is it usually a positive outcome or a negative outcome? Negative. <laughs> negative huh? eight, eight out of ten times negative. <laughs> eight out of ten, right? <laughs> But the other two times make it worth it, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think that's the truth of most most people as well. Is that yeah, you print on the model, and usually over time, you're, you're probably, the model's going to beat you. Uh, uh, but I think you brought up something interesting there because, you know, in a way, one way you said, okay, trading the the uh, system in uh, kind of systematic fashion has removed some of the emotion, but then you also kind of said that you know trading the system as, is still emotional. So I think. Yeah. I think a lot of people think, well, if I just get my trade ideas into some sort of strategy or, or algo or quantitative fashion or system, then that should just remove the, the emotional the emotions from the trading. But um, you're saying hasn't hasn't done that for you? No, and I think where where things uh, go a little bit or well, go awry is is in, in periods of drawdown. Mm. So when things are going fine, obviously, or, or even let's say break even, I'm I'm fine with that. But it's when when the periods of, of drawdown start to happen. And you start to second guess the system and you see what's happening and then you start to question whether you need to tweak some parameters and things like that. And um, that, that's where it can get a bit da not dangerous, but I mean, that, that's definitely where the, the emotions start to creep in. Yeah. Um, and this is the thing that I've mentioned it uh, last week in the meetup as well, that um, I have this reminder on my phone that pops up every day at 7am to trust them all. I just need to, put faith in it and, and, and go with it. I will obviously making enhancements, but I think the thing for me, I, I need to have like a, a real structural reason to make an improvement these right. days. Uh, there, there has to be a, um, something that I'm seeing that's happening and, and it's, and it's looking at it in retrospect, really looking at, you know, looking at my last, whatever, six weeks trades and saying, okay, what has happened? Is this, you know, and really identifying quantitatively what, what is going wrong. Yeah. So that, that's a really good point. So when is, you know, obviously your system is tuned for the daily, for a daily signal. Um, 
when do you know then, and you just kind of touched on it, but when, when do you know when to, you know, kind of intervene and say, okay, I need to either turn off, you know, put the system on pause or I need to, you know, I need to uh, modify the, the system because it's not generating the results that I thought I was going to get, you know, from the previous tests. Yeah. I, I think for me that there's um, the, the one, the one clue that I usually have is when there's a, uh, uh, I call it like a logical fallacy that happens. So there's a logic that the model is supposed to capture and that the market is supposed to represent, or that, sorry, that the model is supposed to represent of the market. And I can find a, a counterexample. Um, and I had an earlier version of the model. I, I saw this coming and I couldn't figure out why is this, I, I'm, I'm following the signal but there's something wrong with that signal and I couldn't put my finger on it. And then I, then I finally, I, I was looking at the, the, well, looking at a combination of the code and looking at, at just really, sometimes you have to write these things down on a piece of pen and paper and, 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 and do the calculation and see what is this calculation right. And that, that's, it's, a, it's more nuanced than, and it's very tough for me to, to pinpoint exactly um, when and how to, to intervene on those things. Yeah. Cause I think, you know, we've had this discussion before at the meetups and people kind of want that firm answer, right? They're like, okay, well, it's pretty simple. Just, you know, after the system breaks for, you know, or this many days or doesn't get this many, you know, <laughs> has this many raw, you know, fail trades and just, you know, turn it off or fix it. But I don't think there is any clear cut answer, right? It's not like, okay. Yeah. Um, and I, but if people want that certainty when it comes to quantitative trading because they think that, oh yeah, it's quantitative. It should just be like a black or white answer. It should not to be either one or zero. Um, but I think it's a nuance, just like everything else. It's kind of nuanced about, uh, about you know, when just to step in, right? Exactly. And I think it's something, too, where you see that markets obviously do transition mm -hmm. from different states, and it can be either increased volatility. There's kind of parameters that are lying underneath the surface that we don't see. Yeah. Uh, I, mean, I mean, I'm trading flat price. I'm not seeing other dynamics of... of of, of, of market, right? Right. Yeah. And then that's certainly something. I mean, we we talked, you know, talked about VIX and things like that that are underlying parameters that um, we're not. It can influence the way that you would trade S and P, for example, right? I mean, right. There's a regime shift in, in volatility, and you need to adjust the model accordingly. Yeah. 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 I think, I think it's very fascinating that that. Um, that that whole topic of of uh, quantitative trading and because I see a lot of people getting into it because you know people try discretionary trading and they like you said they struggle with the emotions that come with with uh, with discretionary trading mm -hmm. um, and they just think that you know the grass looks so green over there when you, you know, if you if I just go to the quantitative space and I just create an algo you know as the next step that uh, I can just get rid of the emotions and I'll just trade emotion three and everything will just you know be be great but. Well, I think, you know, I think the, the lesson here is that as human beings, you know, emotions are baked into the cake, so to speak, right? We're going to have emotions regardless if uh, you know, we trade discretionarily or, or, um, or using the quantitative system. They'll just show up at different times, of course, but yeah. less they're going to be there. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So how do you deal with the emotions? So when you have, you know, that, that kind of struggle and you're like, okay, you know, the, uh, the environment or the, you know, that, that we're currently in right now, it's, it's generating some, some, some fake outs and it's causing me to take some losses in my system. What's your approach to begin to, you know, catch yourself to say, okay, I'm, I'm kind of falling off the tracks here. What, how do you get back to zero or get centered again and, and you know, have that, that faith in your system? Um, I think that there's, there's probably, I attack it on different levels. Um, one thing that I, I, I'm getting better and better disciplined with is um, doing things like meditation um, to just keep the, how would I put it? So that I, doing meditation and, and these sorts of things helps me identify when the emotion, allows me to um, observe the emotions better mm, yeah. as, as a, you know, a, an observer rather than being in, in the emotion itself. Yeah. Uh, so there's, there's that. And I forgot, what, I was going to say something else, but um, uh, th there's, there's another element. Then, yeah, obviously, I mean, I, I, risk management tends to kick in at that point as well, where I, I, I scale back. I mean, it happened now this last month where I was, I was starting to scale up. Yeah. And uh, 
the, the, the system took a couple of hits and I could feel that I was not able to contain my emotions on, on a, a controlled basis. And so I just scaled back. Okay, look, I need to scale back a bit, you know, start from a, 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 a more solid footing. And I think the thing for me is that with emotions, there's sort of this threshold of pain that, uh, that we all kind of have. There's this numerical value that, uh, <laughs> you know, there's a, there's a numerical drawdown, whether it's, you know, 2% or 5%, whatever the number is, that, that you know, things start to really be painful. Yeah. And uh, obviously it's better to just have, you know, the risk. I mean, I have, I have my own risk management model on the side, but, um, but it's definitely <laughs> something that, um, uh, that I, I take into account. There is a, there is a bit of a, a give and take between uh, my, my, my risk management and uh, my emotions. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And just the importance of preserving not just your capital, but your psychological capital, right? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. For me, they go hand in hand. Yeah. yeah. Very, 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 very true. So, what do you think then are, you know, as we're talking about some of the struggles and some of the, the hard, for hard emotions that come up with trading, what do you think are some of the most common mistakes that, you know, so quote unquote struggling traders kind of run into? Do you see any, like, as you talk to traders and you guys, you've seen on the desk in the past, do you see some common mistakes that people make that, that tend to exacerbate their situations? Yeah, 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 definitely. I mean, if I, if I look back at the, at the biggest blowups that I've seen over the last 10 years, yeah. the, the principal candidate has been the ego. Mm. Those traders, they uh, tend to uh, either they oversize a market or um, try to, well, yeah, try to bully a market. These, it's those, I mean, of course, I'm seeing it. I'm, that's the, the, the luxury of, of being an OTC market. OTC marketers that you observe these things firsthand, you know that this trader has this certain style and they, they're trying to run stops or they're trying to do this, right? Yeah. And um, I, I'm just thinking of this one example of, of a trader who was, was a superhero one year and the next year he went to zero and was fired. Really? Um, and it, the, the, the turnaround was, how would I put it? In some of these organizations, not, not where I work, definitely not where I work, but in some of these other uh, like trading houses, um, to use a bit of a rough expression, they, they, if you're doing well, they'll give you enough rope to hang yourself with, right? <laughs> and that's exactly what happened to this guy, right? And so he, he had a fantastic year. He got, he got maybe in my opinion, a bit lucky on the oil market for that year. He made a very good call on oil. Yeah, uh, made a lot of you know eight-figure P&L, fantastic. And then the next year, they double up his capital, and then he starts swinging for the for 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 the you know for the fences. And then that's when things go off the you know you are given more capital, you have more VAR allocated to you, so then you you you, you get out of control, right? Yeah, that's where um, having a and you'd mentioned this last week, having this beginner's mind. I think you'd said or. or yeah. Uh, learners might, I forget how you, how you phrase it. Um, that's something that I've always tried to, to keep in, in check. Um, I always, I tend to be on the other side of these trades <laughs> eventually because I see what's happening and I'm like, okay, well, this guy's trying to sell it down to this point and it's not going to, if it doesn't break past that point, then there's a good chance it's going to you know, turn violently the other way. Snap back, right? Yeah. So the idea, so the, the ego. Yeah. The ego, huh? Yeah. That for me, it seems to be the, the, a big culprit. Yeah. It seems I mean, like it's obviously there's system issues and things like that as well that come up. Yeah. But um, that or, yeah, or system failure, those are things that have happened. That I, we, but I find those things generally, if you're sharp, you catch those things fairly quickly. I mean, I, I remember we were, we were pricing, we were using an option pricing model in 2005, six, and um, it was doing fantastically well. And we were like, there's these auction processes where we were winning these auctions at, at great fills, getting these things out into the market later. And, um, and I remember this one point, it was around Christmas 2006, and then the market, the, the model just broke down. And it was a different. The market, the, the market had gone through a through a shift in, in volatility, <laughs> and although volatility is a parameter in, in, in the option pricing model, the way that we were skewing the the, the, the pricing was wrong, and, and so then that, that caught us. And, and 
but then you correct it very quickly. Right. right. Interesting. Huh? So it kind of happened on the dime like that, or kind of slow the model slowly worked, stopped we, working. We, yeah, we, we felt it right away. I, I, we, 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 we did the pricing, and then just intuitively the number felt high. It felt like we were bidding way too high for this. And then <laughs> <laughs> we got filled with everything filled, and of course we we're the you know the <laughs> yeah the winners curse in an auction. And <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> never, that's never a good feeling. It's like, uh oh, <laughs> I could be a problem. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> So let's shift a bit. So, what do you think? Um, what or what? What? Who or what ideas do you think have uh, have impacted you most on, on your on your trading? Um, I think on on the ideas side, I was for a long time very enamored with fundamental analysis. Okay. Uh, so that was something that um, I would say that I in my first five years of trading, I, I very rarely looked at that technicals. Mm, okay. uh, so very much driven by fundamental analysis. And it's, it's very much in the, in the commodity. Uh, it, it's something that comes out of uh, the commodity philosophy is that there's a, there's a supply demand balance and then over the long run prices revert to these levels. And, um, so there, there, and it's, um, and it's something that over time, as I, especially as I moved into uh, directional trading, so I, for my first five years at the same time, I was also only trading spreads and options. So I was never really trading outright uh, uh, commodities. Yeah. And obviously when you add the, the, the outright, so the, the directional uh, view on commodities, it, it changes everything. And then all of a sudden, you know, for me, then the, the technical approach uh, gains credence. That's something that um, uh, over that time uh, changed for me a lot. So definitely since 2011, my, my, my trading style gravitated towards that. And um, in terms of who, because you'd asked uh, who and what, I would yeah, say. Exactly. In terms of people, I, um, I really appreciate, uh, if, if there's two famous uh, traders that I, I really appreciate is, is Ray Dalio and Paul mm. Tudor Jones. Mm, yeah, um, I find my, my, my view is that if, if interviews are rare, usually what they say is quite deep and profound. Yeah. <laughs> if, if someone's going to be on Squawk Box on CNBC every week, it's usually it's just, you know, market noise. Uh, but I find with them, they uh, their approach over over the long run is, is very, very interesting. They, uh, they have very long term, solid track records. And just when you hear their, their, their thought process, uh, uh, the way that they approach markets, I think is, is something that I, I try to emulate. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, have you, um, I, I think you, I think you did mention it that the, in your presentation that, that, uh, you're a big fan of Dalio's latest book principles. You get some, uh, you get some great quotes from that book. Uh, how's that book, uh, influenced your, your process? It's it's interesting book to, to to give a kind of a short my short uh, synopsis of of the book. It's divided into to three parts, and so the first part, the first hundred pages, more or less, is super easy reading because it's basically him retelling his story of the past thirty years, which is fascinating yeah. to see all the markets that he's been involved with. I mean, he's he was at the at the forefront of developing the uh, inflation protected uh, securities, yeah. uh, the dollar DXY, the dollar indexed futures. He's been in a lot of different things uh, over that time period. So that's very fascinating, very quick read. I think I read it in two and a half days. Yeah. And then you get to the middle part, and that's where uh -huh. things get a lot more challenging because it's yeah. about life lessons. Yeah. And that for me, I, I'm, I'm reading it very, 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 very slowly, and I go back and I reread it again very, very, very slowly. Yeah. And I find that each of those principles that he brings up, is, there's, is there's so much wisdom, and you can see how it applies to trading very clearly. Mm -hmm. uh, there's this process that you go through of, 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 of improvement. And, uh, and of course he was one of the, one of the earlier people to, to systematize their, their trading yeah. very early on. And even in the eighties, um, he was already, uh, programming a lot of, of, of the decision rules. And, um, and so that's something that I, uh, I, uh, I've, I've been using a lot, in my own uh, process in model building. Yeah. And well, one of the big lessons that I really liked from that book or took away from was 
it wasn't really a lesson, but I just, I just thought there was such a, uh, you know, powerful truth to it. it was um, the story when he shared about, you know, his failures, right? And he was never shy about, you know, not trying to, you know, he wasn't trying to show that he was perfect, right? And he yeah. made many, many mistakes and, you know, to the, to the point where he was nearly out of business at, you know, at one point yeah. early in his career because of his ego, right? He talked about it, <laughs> about his, how his ego was really out of control and, and that it caused him, you know, to have a, a horrendous drawdown. Um, and he had to basically restart again because one really wanted to be around him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so really, really powerful stories from, from Dalio. Um, one quick question. I want to take a quick step back because I just want to get well, one, uh, one answer that I had, which I was curious about. So the platform, so the system that you designed, what platform is that running on? Do you do that in Python? Do you, do you have your own, running off that own, your own code base or are you doing all, using sort of, uh, sort of you know, off-the-shelf platform for your modeling and that kind of yeah. stuff? So, so the initial model that when I was doing the development was in Python. Okay. And uh, I was having issues because basically the, what I was using was Python uh, querying Quandl database. Okay, yeah. And the problem was that the, the updates of the Quandl database happened quite late. Mm -hmm. Like I can't get closing prices at the close with Quandl. Right. And uh, so interestingly enough, I was at, a, at uh, one of your meetups uh, earlier this year and I saw someone had trading view up on the uh, on the screen. It might have been you actually. I don't know. And uh, excuse me. And I saw that. I wrote it down. I went home and I checked it out. And so at, at that point, or no, maybe a month later, I, I switched over to uh, to trading view. Okay. The uh, the Pine scripting language that's in. Yeah. There. I find it, it it's. It's nothing fancy, but it, it gets the job done. You know, sometimes you have to work a bit with the code to, to get what you want done, but it's yeah. um, but it, it, it does it in a fairly clean way. Right. So sure. So do you use the backtesting tool that's in that product, or you do the backtesting in you know outside of that in your own spreadsheets and that kind of stuff, or do you you try using that, that stuff that's inside the? I have tried the the backtesting tool that's in there, and I find it. I don't want to be too critical, but I, I find it's not robust enough for what I'm trying to do. Right. Um, so I'm looking for, and I just found actually uh, uh, as a, as a follow up to, to last week's presentation, I, I've been introduced to a couple of other platforms that have uh, uh, better uh, back testing. Uh, yeah. 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 The back testing tool, I've tried it as well in trading view and it looks like it's, you know, it's still very new. So it looks like it's, yeah. it's uh, it needs to be a little more fleshed out, but not bad for someone who's kind of new to things, but uh, certainly like you said, it doesn't have a lot. It's not that robust. Exactly. Yeah, well, cool. Exactly. I was very curious about that. So um, we're coming up on an hour already, so we're, I'm having yeah. a lot of fun chatting, but uh, maybe we should uh, be more respectful of your time, so I'm going to start to close things down a bit. Um, so what are your thoughts? You know, you, you talked about Ray Dalio's book as a, as a great book. Um, you know, it's Christmas right around the corner, and, you know, traders out there, if you want to, you know, books are always a great gift. Um, uh, so, Dale, you have any books that you'd recommend for traders to, uh, as Christmas presents or, <laughs> or just a you know, topical <laughs> reading? Yeah, I think, well, my, the three that I, I was thinking about this the other day, I think that the three trading books that I've come back to in, in, in different periods of time, so there's, there's well, the, the new one for me is, is Principles, right, Alan? Sure. And I realize that it's not, a, a strictly speaking, a trading book, but I find that the, the, the mental process is super important there. Yeah. Um, then there's the reminiscence of a stock operator. I find still it's it's a reference. It's really it's a it's a classic. Yeah. Um, and then a third one that I I've looked at or I've read and it got handed around the trading floor uh, is um, called uh, Diary of a Professional Commodity Trader. Oh, who who's that? Brent. Brent. Yeah. Okay. His style is purely discretionary. So there's a there's big chunks of the book that I don't really. I kind of gloss over, but his yeah. risk management is quite solid. And um, just his way of seeing markets, I think, is, is, is pretty... Uh, and I, what I also appreciate with him is that it's, he's not trying to sell you some system because he's, it is a diary. And, he, and what I appreciate with it, it's very open with his, his, his gains and losses over that period. Yeah. And he, he talks through uh, that process of, of you know... Uh, and it gives you... It gives, it, I find it gives me a good idea of, you know, what's a reasonable amount of... Uh, um, trades to be doing per month. What's a reasonable amount of you know capital? I mean, there's the, the risk side of it. I, I think he he shapes certainly shaped some influenced me on on, uh, on some of his process. I, I don't use his um, his parameters, but uh, but I'm definitely 
uh, influenced by that. Cool. Yeah, I remember reading that book a long time ago. I'll have to, I'll have to try to find that again because you're right. It was, it was a good book, I, but I read it many, many years ago. Um, but yeah, Reminiscence is another one. I, I tend to read that every year. I, yeah. You know, it's like a, one of those books that I gravitate back to every now and then. It's like, oh yeah, it's been a while since I read that book and I pick it up again and it feels like I'm reading, <laughs> you know, for the first time again. Although there's always little new lessons that come out each time, right? You just pick up yeah. little things. Absolutely, yeah. It feels like I pick up that book every time I have a bit of a lull. Like I feel like, oh, my training's kind of getting a little bit, you know, I yeah. kind of have a lull and I pick the book up again. And, you know, like you said, that, that kind of fire, it kind of, uh, yeah, ignites it again. So it's a, it's a great book. Yeah. So to wrap things up then, so if uh, people want to hear more from you, do you, do you have any social media that you, that you put out there? Or are you active uh, on, you know, on, the, on the social media side or if people want to find you and, and uh, see your perspectives if you share them? I, for the moment, I'm not. And it's interesting because uh, it's interesting you asked that because uh, one of the things I wrote down yesterday was socialize my, my trading. And I think that's something that would probably help. Uh, okay. well. I, I don't, for the moment, I, I don't, uh, I don't, I don't blog. I don't, uh, I don't do anything. Um, but uh, it's something that I should probably look into. <laughs> not a problem. Yeah. Maybe not because I find the social media, it's <laughs> just noise. I'm always afraid of this. Yeah. That's, <laughs> Part of what's held me back is I'm afraid of the distraction that it might cause. Yeah, exactly. You don't you don't need internet trolls coming after you. So, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but yeah, of course, you know, if you're in the Montreal area, Dale comes out to the meetups regularly. So if you're in Montreal, you know, drop in at one of our meetups and you'll, you'll get a chance to meet Dale in person, which is a, a lot better than just chatting via Twitter. <laughs> in my, in my opinion. <laughs> Anyway, so Dale, I want to thank you once again for last week's presentation. I want to thank you for t you know today's chat. I thought it was a fascinating once again. I really you know am grateful that you're part of a community and uh, that you're so willing to share your experiences and uh, and ideas. So thanks once again. Well, thank you very much, Houston. I really appreciate the time. Thank you. It's a pleasure, man. And uh, we'll talk again soon. Okay. All right. Thanks. All right. Take care. Yeah, thank you. Bye.